On behalf of the Polly's Vague Theories podcast team and our guests and everyone involved, I want to acknowledge we are recording on Lutruwita, home of the many mobs of Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Their stories have been transmitted for over 65,000 years and we pay our respects to their elders and their ancestors. I also extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening and acknowledge your ongoing connection to land, sea and sky. I also acknowledge that connection is unbroken and that sovereignty was never ceded and the ongoing trauma experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, their culture and communities from the aftermath of colonisation. Always was, always will be. If you've been listening to Polly's Vague Theories long enough to maybe become indoctrinated by my deep love of all things therapy, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Polly, where do I start? It's a big, complex world out there. I don't know, my psychiatrist from my psychotherapist. Do not worry, friend, I got you. It can be complicated. So I've created an audio course for you that really steps out all of the different things you need to know when starting on your therapy journey. Who's who in the zoo? What do you do? What does an intake session look like? What are some of the things you need to ask your therapist? What are some of the red flags you might be looking out for? What's your responsibility and your part and what is theirs? And even that big, often unspoken question, how do I break up with a therapist if the relationship is not working? All covered for you if you want to grab a copy of the course. It's $19.95 Australian, priced to hopefully fit into nearly everyone's pocketbook. Head to the website www.pollymcgee.com and you can grab it under the therapy link. If you're really desperate to get your hands on a copy but that feels like it might be out of your reach, send me a little message through the contact page and I will sort you out. Hey, this is Polly from Polly's Vague Theory. So excited for you to be with me this episode. Today we're going to talk about attachment theory, which really is an integral hand-in-hand part of understanding developmental trauma or interpersonal trauma. But for me, more importantly, it's a really integral part in understanding what is happening relationally between us as we go about our day, we go about our interactions with people, we're in our work cultures, we're in our relationships within our families. It all comes back to what has happened in our earliest development and how we've developed our attachment styles. I think it's really critically important in understanding where trauma might fit in your responses to things and also getting you to understand how ubiquitous trauma is. Because realistically, if you've got a family and you've got a nervous system, at some point you've got an adaptation and an attachment. You intrigued, you should be. I cannot wait to dive deep with you in this episode. So excited for this episode today, talking about one of my favorite things, which of course is trauma. But today we're going to really drill down into the attachment piece of trauma and where it fits, particularly in developmental trauma or in interpersonal trauma. What I see all the time when I talk about trauma, is really a split in two ways. People often 
we'll see trauma as being somewhere over there. It's something that's really big and dramatic that possibly hasn't happened to them. And that's what their association with trauma will be. And PTSD is something that is massive and overwhelming and it's not something that's part of their life. And that's probably true for a lot of us. Even though statistically it would be shown in Australia that around 75% of adults have had a known trauma. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that we will develop PTSD or a condition based on that. But it will mean that we've had something that is traumatic to us. And I think there is a difference between traumatic things happening and us acquiring a trauma response. And as systems, as human mammalian systems, we're designed to withstand different experiences and calibrate back from them. The thing that is the most pervasive that actually is what shows up in my therapy space and in my rooms and in workshops and in cultural problems is the small t trauma. So it's not the shock trauma of big t trauma. It's the trauma that happens in the developmental period. So prenatally, in utero, postnatally, in early birth and early childhood, through to sort of teens and late teens. But most of the action in terms of us developing how we respond to safety in the world happens in that zero to seven period. So because it's called developmental trauma, people still make that association with it being something big and dramatic. And I often will hear people say, oh, but what happened to me? It wasn't that bad. I had great parents or I went to school every day or I had a secure home or I had enough food. Those aren't necessarily the things that contribute to small teachers small T trauma, although of course they can contribute to it. Attachment styles really talk about the feeling of safety in our body. And so developmental trauma is what happens when we have a maladaptive system of safety and how that impresses the way we are in the world, in our behavior. It's probably the simplest, somewhat convoluted way of saying that. So we're going to talk a fair bit today about the autonomic nervous system, which if you've listened to Polly's Vague Theories, you'll have heard me talk about polyvagal theory, the ands. Today we're going to add into that the development of the brain in our right hemisphere and our left hemisphere and how that connects to the nervous system, but much more how it connects to the adaptation of safety. I'm going to make this as simple and as relatable and as accessible as possible because I think the key thing with understanding about our attachment styles, and therefore how we go from having developed attachment styles as infants and children to how they play out in all areas of our life. It's really important that we can make the connections for ourselves. Now, I've said it once, I'll say it many, I'll say it, I'll say it many times. I didn't have a science background. I haven't grown up with like deep science knowledge. So what I found really useful for me, but also in the translation of this to others, is the capacity to make it simple and understandable. And mostly the responses I get when I talk about this are people saying the same things I said, which is, how did I not know this? How did I not learn how to drive my own body? How did I not understand what was happening in my felt sense and my reactions? And I have to say, I've asked a number of doctors and physios and people who I would consider frontline body people. Did you learn this at medical school? Did you learn this in university? Did you know about this? And most of them are like, oh, well, you know, basic, a bit of basic understanding of the nervous system, but we never really had the depth of this. So I think that it's something that is widely not understood in society, unless you have very specialist medical practices or therapy practices, I guess, like I do. And it's really like the light that comes on when we get to understand how to drive our bodies. Okay, so let's start with the premise, which is 
we are all mammals. And one of the exciting things about mammal life is that the way that we develop our nervous systems and we develop ourselves is in relationship and connection to others. So you will have heard me say many a time on this podcast that we are hardwired for connectivity. And what that means is our nervous system needs to grow through the mirroring and the connection with other people. And those other people in the very early days of our development are primarily our parents and primary carers. So the beginnings of our nervous system clearly start with us in utero, but they also actually start with our parents, predominantly our mother, because we are growing in our mother's womb. I always want to say stomach, but you know, I know that's, that's anatomically wrong. We are also being transmitted the mother's state and situation, which is where there's now a lot of really interesting data over decades to show that the conditions of trauma and the life experience of the mother play very strongly into the development of the fetus. And one of the things that happens, particularly if you have a situation when you are pregnant, where you are experiencing a lot of toxic states of trauma. And by toxic, I mean ongoing, continual trauma that is making you produce adrenaline and cortisol and all of the stress hormones that go for our trauma responses. They are able to move directly through the mother, through the placenta and into the growing fetus. So those cortisol and adrenaline amounts in an infant change the way that the brain develops. And so what tends to happen if you have a baby that's come through a mother that's experienced toxic stress, you'll have a baby that has a much higher statistical opportunity, probably the wrong word, to itself be predisposed to having a sensitivity to stressful situations because the way it's developed will have primed it at the pump as it were. So the baby's born and the baby at that stage is learning cues of safety in its developing brain. The right hemisphere of the brain develops first in an infant and the right side of the brain is our emotional and our non-verbal side. It's where we have all of the unconscious cues that develop safety and behavior into our system. It's where we learn through interaction with others, primarily our mother and our father or our primary carers, whatever mix that is. It's where we learn what safety looks, feels and sounds like because our initial learnings at that age were all pre-verbal are from the look of our mother's face, the capacity to stare into the eyes of our mother, to hear their voice, to see the movement of smiles, to feel them skin to skin. It's really in this incredibly primal way. Now I'm talking in a highly sort of heteronormative way in terms of the baby being born from a mother and being close to the mother for the first part of its birth. And this is because in a very biological and mammalian way, that's what's going to happen. But clearly families are made up of all different flavors of folk these days. However, the one thing that every infant mammal human needs is to have this level of connection that is constant. So a baby will cry because that's its way of expressing itself. It'll cry or it'll gurgle or it'll make all the noises. It will only have the range and repertoire of sounds to get attention that it has at this early stage of development. So the baby cries signaling to the mother that there is a level of distress. The mother will come over and ascertain whether that is that it's lonely, that it's hungry, that it's thirsty, that it's nappy needs changing, that it's frightened by something and will then ideally pick up the child, soothe the child, skin to skin, 
face-to-face, make all of the soothing noises, having that prosody, that sound of voice that signals to the infant that it's okay, someone is here. And this is the infant's first experience. Hears the sounds, gets comforted, starts to develop the circuits in its brain to say, when I do this and then this happens, I'm safe. And this is the connection piece. This is the co-regulation. So a mother and father or other care or partner hears sounds of distress. The baby's comforted, ideally within a short amount of time, reinforcing the story that when I'm distressed, I have a rupture of some sort and then I come back to safety. As that infant gets a bit older, six months, 12 months, the nature of crying changes because the cries don't need to be so frantic and so loud because when the infant makes that sound, it knows that there will be a response. And so there's more nuance that comes into these nonverbal communications. But the key part is that in this right brain and this developing brain, it's really shaped by social and emotional experiences, the feeling of safety. The neuroceptive feeling, you would have heard me use this word before, it's the feeling that happens between nervous systems. So I'm a baby, I'm crying, my carer comes over to me, picks me up, holds me, and my system to system is able to become regulated and soothed. Now, if I'm crying because I'm distressed, I need to be down-regulated. But sometimes if I'm being playful and I'm giggling and gooing and garring and having a fun time, I might be being really G'd up by that parent. I might be being really shown that it's okay to be as fun and as loud and as joyful and as silly as possible. And that is the upregulation. So I'm starting to really build those parts of my parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. If you remember me talking about the polyvagal ladder at the top of the ladder we've got ventral vagal which is the place of connection of joy of where this prosody sits where we are really in a place in the world where we feel safe we feel secure we feel social we can be curious and we can explore now that stays with us our whole lives but if you think about it in the context of a young infant this is the part where we are moving through just the the cry and distress response for safety into starting to really explore the bigness of our world as we start developing more of our senses. So we need this upper ventral vagal part of our polyvagal system. We need the sympathetic system to come online because we need a little bit of the mobility that comes from that sympathetic response. And then we need the down regulation of our lower parasympathetic or dorsal vagal to bring us back into a place where we can get calm. And we need our primary carers who we are really attached to, to be able to anticipate this regulation and show us the right cues to help us come back to the place we need to be for homeostasis. So coming back to a place of mutual regulation with the parent. But also each time we experience this as we're in this nervous system growing part of our lives, we are really building circuitry into the right side of our brain to show us how to personally know how to self-regulate. In our early infant days, we're co-regulating. We're being taught by the behavior of our primary adult mammal carer how we need to know what safety looks like and what safety feels like. And once we've imprinted, once we've imprinted those circuits enough in the right-hand side of our brain, we are able to have the strength of knowing, okay, this feeling situation's happened, this is the response I'm going to generate in my system. Now, meanwhile, the left-hand side of our brain is developing as well. So the left-hand side of our brain is the logical, verbal, language processing, emotional function 
part of our brain. It is our conscious brain. So if you think about the left as our conscious brain and the right as our unconscious brain, it's the left-hand side which really holds a lot of our executive function and is probably the part that makes us the most human as human mammals because it's the part that does give us this capacity for staying in logic, reason, managing time, linear time, understanding what everything is, where it all fits. So when we develop and we've got our left-hand side and our right-hand side, our left-hand side is processing information and language, but our right-hand side is processing emotion, which is why in the felt sense, our logical brain can really override our intuitive sense, particularly if we've learned to trust our intellect more than we trust our felt sense in our body. The best thing we can do is be able to really use both. So in a situation where we are well-regulated and we've properly developed the circuits in our brain through infancy, through attachment, that have given us the right cues of what it is to feel safe, what it is to feel a rupture or feel unsafe and know how to come back to safety. When we see a situation happening, we'll feel it in our body neuroceptively. We will send the signals to our brain to say something's not going right here or something feels weird here. Our left-hand brain will make an assessment of that and ideally we'll be like, oh no, there's no danger here. Oh yes, there is some danger here, which will signal to our system to start mobilizing. If there's danger, our sympathetic system's going to come more online. We're going to be able to do, go into our fight or flight or if there's really extreme danger, we'll go into our freeze. This is a very simplistic way of describing this, but I really want you to stay in the simplicity of what happens in well-regulated and, and poorly regulated. Now, if in the development of my attachment, I've had a parent or carer who, for whatever reason, has been unable to properly teach me how to self-regulate. They've either been dysregulated themselves or they haven't developed their own system of safety and attachment well for various reasons or have given me miscues, have really overstimulated me when I needed to be calmed, have really left me alone when I've been crying and I've been desperate for soothing and comforting. That will change the way the circuitry in my brain is developed, which may mean that I miscue in how to respond to things. So I might see what could be a very minor threat, but not be able to, to downregulate myself. So I go into a fully blown sympathetic response. So I'm fully cortisol, adrenaline off the Richter, and I'm panicking, whereas the situation really isn't that extreme. Or I go into a full freeze situation and I'm just immobilized, which if I'm a baby might mean that I've just cried myself into a place of motionlessness, which might, from a parent's perspective, be like, oh, great, that baby's finally stopped crying. But if, I'm, if I haven't been comforted and co-regulated into an actual conscious calming, then that might just actually be collapse. So I'm teaching my system the wrong cues because I haven't been shown what the right cues are. So let's take this to a place of what attachment theory is. So attachment theory, widely promulgated in the early days by a guy called John Bowlby, who's had a number of luminaries alongside of him across the years, continuing on the research he did about the behavior of infants and their caretakers. And it was largely the work that he's done that, that made the connection between attachment and development of our nervous systems and the behavior around safety to being in this collective community relational proximity rather than innate within 
the nature of a child. So basically, I learn to be safe through the connected interactions I have with my primary caregivers. This work has been really developed in more recent times and put into that trauma and neuroscience pantheon by people like Bessel van der Kolk and Ruth Lanius and Dan Siegel and Gabor Mate, all of whom I talk about a lot because they're the people I tend to study with and learn from. So attachment theory looks at different states of attachment. Secure attachment is the gold standard. It's what we're going for. So it's exactly the situations I've been describing. Parents and broader caregivers who are well regulated in themselves, who are able to know how to appropriately cue an infant into down-regulated or up-regulated states and who are able to show the infant over a span of time along with other caregivers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, teachers, etc., how to be able to keep themselves in a place where when rupture happens, because it will, that's the nature of being a human, that the rupture is impermanent and is able to be restored. So very much we look at rupture as the disconnection. Again, we're hardwired for connection. So when a disconnection happens, for whatever reason, I just feel unsafe or I've had an argument with someone or I don't understand something that's going on or I'm overloaded in my system somehow. Whatever that rupture looks like, Either I have the capacity to bring myself and calm and soothe myself back into a state of homeostasis or someone who is around me is able to do that thing, which is why it is the connection piece within mammals is I cannot even state the importance of it. So secure attachment means that I've come from an untraumatized, relatively untraumatized parent set who have been able to give me these skills that I've then been able to take into the world and then develop on my own alongside my other bigger caring mammals. When this doesn't happen, we get a couple of different options in our attachment styles. The first option is avoidant attachment. And avoidant attachment is one of those things that really happens in the absence of neglect. And be really clear that Neglect and absence in connection with infants is not demographically related. I've met many people who have had very wealthy, very what we would call privileged upbringings who have not been properly regulated by their primary carers and so they have developed any of these attachment styles. As much as I've met people who would have come from sometimes quite chaotic or what we would call sort of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, who have had incredibly good attachment because their parents were so emotionally present for them, even though they might not have been as much physical and material wealth. So avoidant attachment style develops when the infant and young child is left without someone to adequately regulate them. And the strategy they come up with for self-regulation survival is I can do this on my own. I don't need anyone else because there is no one else. So it might just be that I've been in a room screaming for hours and I've been left there because the belief of my parents is that that's the best way to stop me crying or that when I've needed to be connected, I haven't been picked up, I haven't been soothed, or I've been scolded for making a noise. And the messages that are coming through my developing right brain and left brain into my nervous system are, you are rewarded and you are safe in this family unit when you are quiet and well-managed. And the story that I've developed is, I can do everything on my own. Now, the problem with an avoidant attachment style is that 
it makes it incredibly difficult for the infant, the child, the teenager, and then the adult to ask for help. So it means that while they are trying really hard to self-manage, they don't know when it's appropriate to ask for help and they think they have to do everything themselves. This puts an enormous burden on the nervous system. And as you can imagine, if you're a five-year-old and you're trying to deal with your fear or trying to deal with your anxiety or try to deal with a situation that you just don't know how to manage, if your nervous system defaults to you can't ask for help, you have to do this on your own, it will set you up for some significant anxiety. And then anxiety which cascades into depression or disconnection or that inability to form strong relationships with people. All of those things you'll see in children, teens and adults who have got an avoidant attachment style. If you have an ambivalent attachment style, this tends to come when caregivers have not appropriately cued you. So sometimes they haven't been available when you've needed to be soothed or upregulated. Other times you'll be wildly overstimulated or there'll be a lot of attention. And so the messaging into the right brain, into the nervous system, into the feeling part of us is I don't know what to do or how to regulate myself. And I don't know when I'm going to be safe. So this tends to lead to much more needy, clingy children. It tends to lead to an inability to recognize the cues in others as to when you are appropriately connecting with them or you're being too much or too little, which tends to set up patterns of behavior which push relational interactions into a self-fulfilling prophecy where if I'm really needy and demanding of you all the time, there's going to be a point at which you disconnect with me because I'm just too much. And then that's going to reinforce the message I have, which is you aren't safe here. You can't predict this. And ultimately, there's going to be a rupture that happens that you don't know how to control. The other or the fourth attachment style, so we've had secure, avoidant and ambivalent, is disorganized. And disorganized does tend to come from infant experiences where there are a lot of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs where you have really dramatic poverty, neglect, violence, drug use, a combination of all of those things. Often parents who are absent and incarcerated or in situations that just mean that the child's situation is they are in danger all the time. The real problem with disorganized attachment style is that you have set an infant up to be in this terrible place of paralysis where the only human that actually is there for them is the same human who is the biggest danger for them. And we see this often in those tragic cases where children feel really loyal to perpetrators in an abuse situation because the abuser is the carer at the same time and they can't separate those two things out. So disorganized attachment means that often those patterns of abuse get carried through teenagehood and adulthood because the child's cueing mechanisms to understand what safety looks and feels like are really distorted because the safety has never been available to them. So these attachment styles, for a recap, are formed in our earliest experiences, mostly pre-verbal, zero through to three in the really early pre-verbal days and zero to seven. We are making adaptive decisions all the time based on the experiences we have with our primary carers because we are little mammals in service to safety and our nervous systems just want to be safe. So they will do everything in their power to make sure that we are doing things to keep us safe within our family units. So I'm adapting and changing and growing neural pathways through the imprinting in the circuitry of my right brain without any conscious awareness of it. So 
something happens, I cry, I get in trouble instead of being soothed. And so what I teach myself is don't do that thing. Something happens, I get humiliated or I get laughed at or something that could be incredibly innocent. But the story, because of the feeling of safety I have in my system, is when I do that, I don't fit into this family. So I need to adapt my behavior and I adapt and I adapt and I adapt until I've come to a place where the responses in my nervous system are really aligned with this unconscious set of beliefs I've had. So as a somatic psychotherapist, much of the work that I do with adults is getting through the body and through the physical system back to those early places where unconscious decisions were made about what safety looks like. And for many of us, the circuitry we've developed has really happened deeply unconsciously. So we might have to tap into a feeling in our bodies much more than we can tap into a memory of an experience. And then we might have to be able to stay with that feeling long enough for a memory to come up or for a visual to come up or for a knowing to come up in the body. And this is where so much of this is very mysterious to us as adults because all we know is that we have a certain type of reaction, often to some people, but we don't know why. And a lot of the time, if we don't have a lot of self-awareness, we don't even know why we're doing it. We can't in our minds control this behavior and we can't control it because it's autonomic and the safety mechanisms in our system push us towards behavior before we even know we're doing it. So let's have some concrete examples so you can try to think about what that might look like for you. And I'm going to talk about this very much in the adult context. So if you don't have an awareness of what your attachment style is, think about, I guess, your go-to in a situation where you feel vulnerable. Vulnerability, classic definition, emotional exposure, risk and uncertainty. So let's say you're in your job, you're in a team, you've got to do a big presentation. You really are feeling super nervous. You're feeling super anxious in your system. How would you regulate yourself back to a place of being able to get calm, to get centered, to be able to go in and do it? If your narrative, the dominant narrative you might have is, I'm not enough. I'm going to do this anyway. I can't ask anyone for help. I don't, can't let anyone know how I feel. I just have to do this. I don't think I'm capable of doing this. I'm going to have to do this. And you're in that world of feeling really isolated, really anxious, not really knowing what to do, but knowing that you have to do it or maybe feeling you have to do it perfectly. That's a really avoidant kind of style. And I'm talking about this as your go-to behavior versus that most of us will get nervous when we do a presentation. But it's an inability to ask for help. If you are in an emotional situation where you really need, ideally, to have another human to be with, but you are unable to get the words out, you're unable to be able to express what you need, that's a sign that you may be someone who has an avoidant attachment style. If you're someone who feels generally that the world is a safe place, that you connect with other people, that you love other people, that you always kind of have a sense that if there's a problem, if there's a rupture, you can go in and repair it. Bad things happen to all people, but things are going to be okay eventually, that you tend to feel that you are in your body and that you are moving through the world with a degree of comfort and ease. That's much more likely to be a secure attachment style. And some of the hallmarks of that are also that you will have really strong memories of your childhood, so you'll be able to remember your childhood, which is a big feature for a lot of us. And also that those memories will involve a lot of comfort, a lot of laughter, a lot of playfulness, a lot of joy, a lot of connection with a variety of different people. Strong friendships, the ability to form and keep friendships, 
and not a lot of rupture, insecurity, all of those types of things. Now, that's about 50% of the population. So you could look at that glass half full or glass half empty in terms of there's 50% of the population who are walking around with other styles of attachment. So you might be someone who, in an ambivalent style, let's go back to that example in the giving us a presentation in a team meeting. If you've got an ambivalent style, you might be really looking towards fawning, leaning towards people to get their approval, desperately wanting to be celebrated, needing to be validated, feeling insecure, feeling a lot of imposter syndrome, not being able to really make a discernment about your own capacity and afterwards feeling terrible and like, oh, they don't like you, or you could have done better. Those kinds of negative self-talk sort of narratives, much likely, more likely to find that in an in ambivalent, secure, insecure attachment. There's a gendered element too here that I want to bring in. And again, when I talk about gender, I know it's a very binary and blunt instrument. But what we tend to see in neurobiology is in women or assigned female at birth bodies, there tends to be a tendency to go for a more ambivalent attachment style, but also to adapt a lot more to freeze or to lower parasympathetic ways of coping with not being able to have the right signals of safety. And that's for a number of reasons, but it comes down again to our sort of mammalianness. It comes down to what is the safest thing for a small mammal body. Usually a smaller body weight, less strength, tends to go to a safer place of immobilization. If I just stay still enough, I'll be safe. We tend to see a much more outwardly focused or acting out style with male or assigned male at birth because it tends to sit much more in that sympathetic nervous system response so you will go into probably more of an avoidant attachment style I can do it all alone I'm fine I don't need anything I'm not having access to my emotions here but much more women assigned female at birth will tend to go to stillness freeze smallness and adaptation And men will tend to go more to confrontation, conflict, violence, or, you know, creating sort of scenes where they are feeling themselves by being much more dominant. It's really interesting. I mean, I think you can make those mammalian correlations between that, but you can also make the social correlations between that. When you look at what we see in where, who is a perpetrator of violence in society, Who tends to be the victims of violence? Who goes to freeze? Who goes to fight? When you have an attachment style that's not secure and from your infancy you have been looking to understand how to regulate and don't have the cues of regulation wired into your brain or if you've had a disorganized attachment style and you don't know whether you've been fighting or fleeing or doing both at some of the times, let alone having to potentially protect siblings and take on parentified roles in very chaotic situations. You can see where those behaviours emerge and then become really problematic later in life when you don't have those tools to be able to know how to behave and cue yourself in with other people. And so again, this is where it's really good to be able to start getting an understanding of what our own attachment styles are. Because if I'm someone who's got an ambivalent attachment style and I'm always looking to be secure in my attachment but feeling like there's always going to be something that's taken away or some rupture that occurs, what that might look like 
to someone I'm in a relationship with is that I'm really clingy and I'm really pushing them and I'm really needing validation all the time. So if I'm in a relationship with someone who has an avoidant attachment style, who can do it all alone, they might find the hardest thing possible is to be emotional, is to talk about their feelings, is to demonstrate emotion in the way that I need. So I'm going to be pushing, pushing, pushing. They're going to be withdrawing, withdrawing, withdrawing. And both of us inadvertently are going to set up exactly the relationships that we believe are what attachment looks like. I'm going to be in a relationship where I'm never sure about my security. That person's going to be in a relationship where they have to go it all alone and they can't deal with what is coming at them in their relationship all the time. And there's great research to back this up that was done in a really longitudinal way through Dan Siegel and his colleagues that looked at the perpetuation of attachment types through school and teenagehood into adulthood. And interestingly and sadly in many ways, the experience of the infant and the way that the circuits are coded into their brain in terms of what's safe and what's not safe means that they are looking to, or we all are looking to, perpetuate those behavioural styles unconsciously. So we will go into a relationship that forces a situation where we are either abandoned, we are neglected, we are told we're too much, we're made to adapt, or if we're secure, we are welcomed and loved and celebrated, and that will reinforce who we are. And this situation, there's a particularly interesting study that happened in schools where teachers were observed interacting with students without knowing what their attachment styles were. And all of them, when they had a secure child, tended to give that child more affection, more trust, more autonomy. They would tend to give them responsibilities that were bigger than they were and really support them to be able to do them. Kids who were avoidant, tended to be kids that got into trouble more, were criticised more, were scolded more and were marginalised more in classes. And kids that were ambivalent tended to be babied more and treated in a much less mature way, given tasks that were under their age capacity and not really given the space to be able to, to grow and to find their own autonomy. Absolutely fascinating. I will put a link to that study or I might actually put the paper in to the notes for the podcast because it's really interesting how those children had no idea that that was how they were behaving. Those teachers had no idea that that was what they were doing with individual children and their attachment styles. But our systems are designed to work in connection with others. So we come into uh, a co-regulation. Is there anyone went for it? a co-regulation with those people that we are in front of, which means that we are acting in the same way they are. So we co-regulate each other. And whether that's into an up-regulated or a down-regulated situation, we are still doing that. So when we know that that might be the behaviour that we're exhibiting, we can make it about us and about changing how we respond and feel in a situation versus about what we're not getting from that other person. Because what we're not getting from that other person is actually what we didn't get as an infant, what we didn't get in childhood. And it's not that other person's responsibility or our friend's responsibility to be able to reparent that part of us. All right, so we've had a big download on attachment and the nervous system and development of the brain. So I'm going to give us a quick summary and then we're going to talk about how do we actually start to do some of that self-modification to learn how to self-soothe. So we've got our autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic, 
upper and lower and our sympathetic nervous system. That's developing as is the right side of the brain in utero and is affected by the condition that our mothers and fathers to a degree, but much more our mothers in terms of the genetic flow and development is coming from. When we're born, we need to be constantly modeled connection and safe regulation through the interactions we have with our parents, primarily our primary carer, which is usually our mother. And those social and emotional interactions and experiences are what forms the safety and security wiring in the unconscious part of our brain, in our right-hand side of our brain. So the left-hand side will be doing its thing, doing its rational, conscious, executive function. But if it is pushed into a place of fear and a danger, lack of safety, and the right brain side takes over, the right brain is only going to be working with the unconscious responses that have been encoded in it from its earliest experience. So even if logically we might be able to think, oh, this situation isn't really as significant as, as I'm feeling it is, once we're pushed over into that part of our system and we are in overwhelm or we are going into the autonomic response of our system, we are going to be working with what we know that's kept us safe. And that will be largely encoded in the time that those attachments happen. So generally a pretty young and immature response. We've got four types of attachment, secure attachment, avoidant attachment. I can do this alone. I don't need any help. Ambivalent attachment. I'm insecure and I don't understand when I'm going to feel safe and secure. So I'm going to keep on trying to validate and to be seen and heard and loved, often unsuccessfully for the coding for my brain. Or I've got disorganized attachment where I have a chaotic, ramped up and entirely unsafe situation, but I am tied to safety through my primary caregiver, who is often the perpetrator of that chaos and disorganization. This has all happened for everyone listening, unless you are in fact an infant. If you are, hello baby. Really, what are we going to work with? We're going to work with what is. So first things first, we have to understand how do we unravel the knowings? The simplest way to do that is to actually work with our felt sense, to work with that right side of our brain, to work with these beautiful mammalian and reptilian systems in our bodies, to start to get back in touch with not just what our intellectual language-based brain is telling us but to go to the source of the major reaction in our bodies which is what the nervous system response is telling us one of the caveats i want to put in here is that if you have experienced developmental trauma that has really changed your attachment style so that has made you avoidant ambivalent or disorganized in some cases your system and you may not ever have had the experience of what it is to feel safe. And for many of us, what that means is that we have a really significantly strong feeling-based disconnection in our bodies. We don't know how to name the language of feeling. We don't know how to experience the safety of feeling in our bodies. And with some people in some situations, if there's been violence or abuse perpetrated to us, we will project that on everyone in those situations, particularly if it involves intimacy or safety in our intimate relationships. So some of the first steps we have to do is to learn how to feel again and to be able to get that sense back in our body. Now, this can feel incredibly unsafe. And so sometimes the tolerance we have for pleasurable and joyful feelings is very, very small. And we feel much safer going back 
to those situations which reinforce where we have developed safety in our body. If I'm going it alone, I might feel lonely, I might feel disconnected, I might feel frightened, but if it's the way that my body has learned how to feel safe, that's my go-to and I'll keep creating those situations because they're safer than the feeling that is uncertain for me, which is feeling loved and secure. So it's really important to recognize that about yourself. This is not a quick process. This is a process of teaching our bodies to create new neural pathways of safety. We don't change the pathways that are there. We just create stronger pathways of safety for us. And the beautiful thing is our brain is elastic and plastic all the way through late into our life, into our 80s and 90s. It's been shown in research that people can change their experience of the world. So that's good news for all of us who have attachment styles that aren't secure or who have situations where we know we don't respond in the way we want to, but we aren't quite sure what it is that is driving that behavior that we don't love about ourselves. So step number one is to really make sure that you know how to feel and look at what some of your repetitive patterns are and look at who those patterns are played out with because it's not just a what, it's always with a who. If we're relational, we will be playing those out with each other in proximity to or in the memory of. So if we're at home and let's say one of our patterns is that when we're anxious because we weren't securely attached, we do comfort eating. Absolutely one of mine. Classic ambivalent attachment style. So I learned as a child to comfort myself by eating and to be able to bring myself into a soothing regulation through that. Now, that's a really smart thing biologically. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling in my sympathetic nervous system. I need to soothe myself. What do I do? I anchor myself with some nutrition and my brain goes, oh, that feels better. Now, sustainable? No. A good habit to be in? No, because what I really needed was to be soothed in relation to another person. So the first thing I'd have to notice is what are the times, and this is literally how I work with my eating stuff, what are the times that I would be triggered to go to eat, to comfort myself? And what had just happened or what was happening that was making me go back to those memories where I was feeling insecure that made me want to secure myself? And doing that in a mindful way. And mindful in this situation basically just means that I am able to spend time in my sense. There was a sense of dis-ease. There was a sense of dysregulation. And so what are the moments I could capture to be able to really observe that feeling in the body without judging it or without trying to squash it down by eating, but just observing how that felt? One really beautiful tip that Dan Siegel has for working with the body is to look at not so much the negative things that are happening and the, the maladaptive or the difficult responses we're having, but to look at the responses where we actually are feeling some kind of joy or pleasure. And it's interesting because he says that people tend, because we have this negative bias towards safety and what that negative bias means, that we are looking for the things that are going to cause us danger rather than the times when we're actually in safety. So if I've got an anxious disposition or a depressive disposition, you know, I might be really focusing and I couldn't get out of bed or I just felt so terrible today or I had these intrusive thoughts going on or I had this repetitive loop going in my head or I was ruminating. But within that, say, 24-hour period, there would have been several moments where I might have noticed a beautiful sunny day outside or I might have had the comfort of a, of a nice bath or I might have had a text from someone or I might have seen something or listened to a piece of music that made me feel better again. 
Now, I might have just parked those away and not really thought about them. But what Dan Siegel says is we need to be able to come back to those moments and be able to recognize what the feeling in the body is of them. So when we're feeling all of the things that are making us feel unsafe, we are able to conjure the sense in our bodies of what brings us back to a place of joy. As I said before, sometimes that feeling might be really uncomfortable and we might only be able to withstand it for a minute, maybe two minutes. But we can build that so when we have a safety incident, something that makes us feel unsafe, we create a resource for ourselves that might be a particular piece of music we listen to or we might have a smell, we might have a sound, we might have a texture, we might have something that is our go-to that we can create a resource with. We might be holding a little felt heart or we might be patting a pet any of those things might give us a moment where we feel calm and soothed and safe again and we are able to self-soothe because the reality is that when we can self-manage our human systems, we are able to bring ourselves into regulation without having to necessarily always be looking to someone else to do that for us. So we become the parents, we become the soothing agents that we didn't have when we needed them to grow our nervous systems. And this is something we can also do through gratitude journals, through being able to identify, as I said, those resources that might be the right resources for us. The people who, when we're with them, make us feel safe, make us feel loved and recruit them into helping us develop those neural pathways really openly so they become advocates for us and they can understand that if it's really hard for you to ask for help, there's one person who you've been able to say, hey, I might sometimes ring you and say, I just need to have a chat or... I'm feeling a bit down and I need to have a co-regulation and give them the chance to also support us because we all love being in connection. We're all hardwired for it. And often though the people that don't know how to ask for help, their pals are really desperate to be able to get an emotional connection with them. It's just that they don't know how to do it because it's often really armored interactions that happen between people. So we can be the architects of our own change in attachment. And we can certainly give the attachment to other people that we're around. We can extend eye contact. We can extend a smile. We can extend a soothing, beautiful, hello, how are you going? And really mean it with people. We can just have an awareness that if 50% of us are walking around and potentially feeling disconnected, feeling isolated, feeling anxious, feeling alone, feeling like we are not in a place where we have great safe regulation in our own bodies, we can start to subtly and gently and kindly and compassionately do it with ourselves, but also do it with other people. One of the things that happens in trauma is because we get this overemphasis on poorly wired systems that are constantly looking vigilantly for safety rather than being able to be open and curious and connected and innovative and happy and joyful and all the things we get when we're in that safe and social part of our nervous system is that we tend to be always referencing the hurts and the wounds and the absences of the past and transposing them onto the present situation to protect ourselves from a lack of safety. But then it stops us being able to look to the future because we don't have the capacity to be hopeful and to look to a time when we could feel differently. All we are focused on is the vigilance of staying safe in the moment with a historical flavor coming through that. So giving ourselves the capacity to 
find a feeling in our bodies that allows us to feel moments of safety, we can then start to imagine what would it be like if I could feel like this for a bit more of the time? Or what would my life look like if I had this capacity to be safe and to be connected and to experience nature or to experience things in a way that had a level of pleasure to it? And again, we're building new neural pathways. We're building new systems to do this. So we have to do it slowly and we have to do it regularly. It has to become a practice. Again, if you're looking for how to start really doing some of this work yourself, of course, it's beautiful to be able to do it with a therapist. But for people who don't have that opportunity or for whatever reason, there are some things which you can begin to do that will help us to get those pathways stronger for us. Pets also, I did mention patting animals before. Pets and large mammals that have got big nervous systems like ours are also a really great place to co-regulate. And if humans have been a source of real danger for you, sometimes an animal is one of the first things you can connect to that makes you feel soothed and comforted. And one of the beautiful things is that while a live animal in your home snuggling up with you is a really great solution to be able to experience feeling of safety in the body just looking at pictures of animals particularly looking at pictures of mammals with their young nuzzling together being together in proximity that is enough to start stimulating those parts of your nervous system to make the connections between what good regulation looks like so even just allowing yourself a few times a day to have a beautiful picture that you can go to of nuzzling cute kittens or puppies or baby apes or whatever it might be for you can help you to retrain your mind that there is safety available and that you'll have that feeling in your system by having this experience of looking feeling co-regulating in a way that is available to you that is my friends the big download on attachment it's a lot and you might find that sometime during this podcast you really checked out because something's tripped you to you a little bit or made you think about experiences you've had that haven't felt so safe. So I recommend if you wanted to go back and have a listen, um, the works of, as I said, Dan Siegel, of Gabor Mate, of Bessel van der Kolk, Ruth Lanius. There's a host of luminaries you'll find, the list of authors on my website that I love reading and working with. They all really focus on the importance of attachment and developmental trauma, or however you want to say it. But my main takeaway for this is if you have a nervous system, if you have a brain, and if you have a family, you will have experienced some things in your past, in your development that may have adapted you in a way that doesn't see safety and doesn't regulate you in a way that makes you feel as great as you'd love to feel. We all have this experience. And the great part about it is that as adults, we can start to work with those deficits or work with those maladaptive parts of ourselves that are just the things that happen when we're human. If we're human, we have rupture because we have relation. And so if we're hardwired for connection, we want to be in relation with people. But we want to be able to come into relation people safely for us. So our systems are helping them to regulate as much as their systems are helping ours too. I hope you've enjoyed the wonderful and exciting world of everything you've ever wanted to know about attachment, but maybe were afraid to ask or maybe didn't know to ask. 
Thank you so much for being part of my podcast. I really genuinely value every single one of you and know that I'm talking directly to you in my heart. And I really hope that you are safe and well-regulated and have a moment of joy today. Oh yes, my friends, another episode wrapped and regulated series two, loving it, sick. If you would like me to record an episode on something of interest to you relating to the nervous system, theory, therapy, trauma, popular culture, whatever it is that floats your boat, let's have those boats rise together. Head to the website, pollymcgee.com and click in the top right hand corner. There it is, an email coming straight to me anonymously saying what you'd like to hear about. Or if you'd like to be interviewed by me or have someone you want me to talk to, all good, you just let me know. Until next episode, stay right at the top of your ladder, loved and connected, seen and known. Thanks for your company. See you next time. Bye.